I don't recall if I gave you the divisions of this next section that we're walking into. If you'll notice verse 1, chapter 7, the word that came to Jeremiah. And then that phrase is not repeated again until you get to chapter 11, verse 1. So we have a pretty long section here that takes us from 7-1 to 11-1. But it's still the combination of sermons. So if you'll notice 8-4, Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 4, he goes from prose to poetry. And so there is a significant change. And then others mark another change uh, at 10-1 where he says, Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel, which is the phrase, but... The, it's probably just the start of another sermon and not a new section, so to speak. Um, but nonetheless, there's difficulty in, in figuring out which sections you need to hold together if you're going to study. But nonetheless, this one's back in 7-1. This is obviously a much easier one because it's all in prose, which I said the last time that we just mentioned this, that it's interesting that he would change to prose without all the imagery of poetry. And what's fascinating about that is where he's about to preach this message, if you'll notice verse 2 of chapter 7, stand in the gate of the Lord's house. And so I, if you were to ask me, why is he changing here, going from imagery to clear, just plain spoken Bible teaching, I would say to you, because of where he is. He's about to speak to the people who are going up to worship and he wants to be absolutely clear with them about the things going on in their life. Okay, That would be my suggestion to you. Um, so this is why I wish that I had had much more time to reflect on this and we may, we may stay here longer. My intention is to work our way all the way through chapter 7 tonight. But if you'll notice at the end of verse 2 where he says, Hear the word of the Lord, all of you, all you of Judah who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Now we spent several weeks on the subject of worship here. And it's still hopefully a continuing process that we're going to walk through uh, for years to come. That we would examine our hearts, uh, the attitude of our hearts as we gather for worship. We would continue to ag examine the, the forms of worship, the things that we've chosen to do to express devotion to God and those sort of things. So this is always so, something that my mind's thinking about and reflecting. But with all that he's about to say, we need to keep in mind that he's speaking to a people that are walking from the parking lot to the pew. Which makes me ask a whole lot of questions in my mind before we even get into the subjects that he's about to raise. Why are you coming to church? What is it that you're wanting to accomplish? What do you want to express? What do you think it's for? All these questions begin to pop up in my mind because apparently, and we know it to be true, I'm being a little bit facetious, but apparently you can come up to the house of the Lord to worship the Lord and he'd be absolutely filled with wrath toward you. L look at 720. Yeah, 720. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place. So they're, you know, they're all dressed up. They're with family. They got their kids on their hips. 
they've parked their car out front. They're walking through the door, and you got this guy that's standing at the door, and obviously he's not preaching what would be a contemporary message because he's got to get you a full message from your car door to the pew. So more than likely, he's repeating a lot of the things that he's saying, but he's going to try to impact you in that short of a period of time that you need to amend your ways and think about what you're about to engage in. Now, he'll bring up the issue that twice in here, if you'll notice back in um, 7, 8, behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. So what's going on inside of the house, whatever it is, it's allowing the people to be comfortable with the way that they're living their life. Now, I always think about these things in perspective of our church or how church plays out in our day. In fact, somebody sent me a picture today of their church, and it's, a, it's huge. It's huge. I mean, there were more people in their choir than was in our sanctuary this morning. Okay, And it wasn't around here, but. And so has God's perspective of us really changed as we walk from the car to the pew? Are we such better people? Are we so more God-centered and so more filled with genuine worship that God is now pleased? See, I don't think so. And I know you have to be careful here because you're moving from Old Covenant to New Covenant. And their obedience to the covenant is what rewarded them with the benefits of the covenant. We're not looking for the rewards of the covenant. We have those because of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I don't think that really changed the perspective of chapter 7 at all. And that's, that's where I cast much of my thought. But I'm convinced the people are no different today. They're walking from the car to the pew with the, precisely the same wickedness that's going on in their lives here and now today. And so when you look at these churches that are absolutely filled with people, you got to understand that they're doing the same things that they're doing here. They're making the people comfortable in their sin. And so now let's say you're not aware of that. You're not aware of the wrath of God and the anger of God. You didn't have the man standing at the door. You didn't hear the message of repentance and amend your ways. You go through that hour, hour and a half long service. And as you walk back to your car, you make the comment, wasn't church awesome today? And still you're totally unaware that God is filled with wrath and anger toward you. But your response is, wasn't church awesome today? Y'all do realize that that takes place like every single Sunday. Because you go back and you examine the question, what's worship really all about? Worship took place for you personally Monday through Saturday and how you lived your life. Your devotion to God and your worship to God is expressed Monday through Saturday. The only thing that we're doing on Sunday is gathering corporately and expressing in song and in prayer the joys of walking in the Lord Monday through Saturday. So if you're able to walk Monday through Saturday with absolute disregard or no thought whatsoever toward God and His glory, what are you expecting to happen on Sunday? And it's interesting how the design of the church has, you know, taken shape over the years because 
many centuries ago, it moved away from participation into observation. Congregation didn't participate. The priest got up and he performed his duties and the people sat there and watched. And this is, when you get into Catholicism, that's when that really took off. The priest performed the priestly service before the people and you just watched. They called you to prayer, you recited the prayer. Called you to song, you recited the song. Whatever, you recited the words of scripture. That was about the extent of your participation, right? Just all observation. Well, when you look at the today, especially in the picture that I got today, I, I knew what was taking place. Church is an event. Literally hundreds of people on the stage singing, and it's, it's unbelievable. It sounds so good, you know, so talented. Many of them probably professionals. And then the guy that gets up and speaks, professional all the way, does such a good job of communicating himself and carrying himself. He's so fascinating to watch, even his movements and as he walks across the stage and everything. And you walk out of that experience and you go, what a wonderful day of worship. I think you missed the whole purpose of worship. It should have been a wonderful week that was capped off by corporately coming together and enjoying God as a body of believers, not as some event. Certainly not something that took place that you would go, oh, that was really good. That was awesome. Now, y'all, please don't misunderstand me. I would love for the house to be filled. I would love for the choir to be filled. I would love for it to be so loud in here that we actually do have to go ahead and buy sound panels because it's just God driving you crazy that there's so many people singing at the top of their lungs. I would love for me to make a statement and 15 people go, amen, praise the Lord. I would love for us to read the word of God and you guys just stand and applaud just from reading. I would appreciate that more than my preaching. If I read this and somebody said, you got to stop and we got to sing, we just heard from God. I would be absolutely ecstatic and I would walk to my car and I'd say, what a day in the house of the Lord we had today. But still you have to be careful because you're looking at the event of that morning and you're completely disconnecting what's taking place in your life Monday through Saturday into God. That's the important thing. Because Sunday's just an overflow of Monday through Saturday. And we have managed to entirely disconnect and cut that cord and do something on Sunday that just reaches into all the senses and actually give us a mindset that we're worshiping God and then leave and disconnect until the following Sunday. That should not be possible at all. So that's what God is trying to reconnect here in Jeremiah 7. He tells them as they're walking through the front door, you better change your ways. And he says that twice. And they've got three things going on in their life. Number one, there is injustice. And we'll look at that. They have absolutely no regard for how they treat their neighbor. And he actually uses the word neighbor. So all this business about social justice and all this, it, it's just justice. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter where they're from. It doesn't matter the color of their skin. It's just justice. Just do right. That's all justice is. 
If, if the lady across the street needs your yard mowed, do right and mow the yard. If somebody's sick in the house that's in their neighborhood, do right and fix some supper or go buy them some supper and take it to the house. It's, or somebody dies in the family, go over there and sit with them for a while. Don't be so busy with your life or uncaring that you're not aware of the needs around you. That's justice. You're driving down the road and somebody's car's broke down. You know what's right, the right thing to do. Okay? So the first issue that he brings up in regard to amending your ways is just paying attention to the needs around you. Know about the poor widow. Know about the orphan. Be aware of the things that are going on. Do that right Monday through Saturday and your worship will actually be significant on Sunday. The second thing is, they simply refused to hear the word of the Lord. They had this in one ear and out the other. And there was absolutely no humble, repentant response to the word being preached to them. They continued to live life the way that they wanted to live life. Now, has that ever changed? Has it ever been any different? That's the struggle for sinners. That's the struggle for me. That's the struggle for you. When you hear God's word, it's always contrary to your fleshly way of thinking. Always. And so our response always should be, Oh my, Lord, forgive me. I need to think differently about this particular area. I need to listen to you. So that's the other thing that we're doing. The third thing that we're doing, it is, it is difficult for us to, to draw a relationship with this, but let me draw you one. The third thing is they were worshiping the gods of their culture. If you'll notice uh, chapter 8, notice verse 2. God's talking about judgment, but he tells them what they've done. They will spread them out to the sun, the moon, and the host of heavens. So they were, they were worshiping the heavens and the stars. Okay. Notice how they approach the gods of the heavens. They have loved, in which they have served, in which they have gone after, in which they have sought, in which they have worshipped. So you got five things that they were doing. Now, you and I don't worship the sun, the moon, and the stars, but you know what we do that you could say is very close to this? We go after the same thing our culture does because that's why they are where they are. They're worshiping the gods and the stars and the heavens because their culture did. And they copied the ways of the people around them. You and I do the same thing because we adopt the same attitude and the same ideas and the same sort of entertainment that the world does. And we go after those things just as much wholeheartedly as anybody else does. It's like we don't even check ourselves to whether we should be participating in these particular things. So that's my line of connection with that because no, no one's going to bow down to the moon tonight. But I'm afraid our lives will bow down to many of the things that's going on in contemporary culture around us and we just won't even pay attention to we won't even ask the question, should this be a conviction of mine? Should this be a particular area of my life where I'm absolutely devoted to the Lord and I'm not going to participate in those sort of things? So in other words, there's lots of lines of similarity that I want us to pay attention to as I read to Jeremiah's very brief message, again, that takes place from the car door to the pew. All right? 
Verse 7, chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Now, let me remind you, Jeremiah is preaching to Judah. The whole northern tribes have already been carried off into captivity. Judah is the very heart of God. In the city or in Judah is the city of Jerusalem where the temple is. This is the chosen people of the chosen people. They are in the city that has known blessing like no other city in no other day. God dwelt in the temple, right? And so as far as being graced, if you will, no other peoples had known grace like these particular peoples that Judah's preaching to. If anybody should have gotten it, it was these people. I can make an excuse for everybody else, but you can't make an excuse for somebody living in Jerusalem in this day. They should have known better, okay? But they did not. Notice verse 3, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Statement one, as you throw the kids on your hip, you need to change your ways. You need to stop living such sinful lives and do right by me. That's the first, the first issue the Lord brings up which I'm very glad for the way that we're doing worship now because we come to repentance like one of the very first things right after prayer. And we're doing that on purpose. And the purpose is for you to change your ways. The purpose is for you to give the Holy Spirit time to confront you in your sin and for you to call out to God in genuine brokenness and repentance. And let me tell you something. After reading the Puritans, that's really an attitude that you've got to work up in your heart brokenness. You ought to beg God for it and you ought to spend time working that up in your heart and reminding yourself of all the goodness and grace that you've received and the little difference that it's made in your life. Work up a brokenness. Work up a repentant heart. Wouldn't it be great? And I, you know, I hope you guys don't feel beat up. But wouldn't it be great if that time we just had to just keep going with it. Like, we can't get to the table yet, Joey. We still got people just crying and pouring out their hearts to God. Let's just wait just a minute. Let's just stay here. And just have just a spirit of repentance sweep from one side of the church to the other. And you just hear people getting in Kleenexes out of their purse and just passing the box around because people are just broken. And it might not be the things that we do, but the things that we're not doing. The lack of wholehearted devotion to God, and we just weep over that. Um, the fact that we came in here and we're not just absolutely filled with joy about worshiping God, and we're just broken over that. The fact that we had the opportunity to share Christ with somebody, and we didn't take full advantage of that, and we're just broken over that those sort of things and we're just and, and by the way that's where revival always begins with brokenness and weeping and repentance and so the Lord wants to do a work in their hearts the first thing he says 
You need to change your ways. You need to change how you live. Notice verse 4. Do not trust in deceptive words. He's going to use that phrase a couple of times. Deceptive words down in verse 8. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And I told you that the last time we were here in Jeremiah. As Jeremiah was preaching this, they were walking into the temple. And the idea was that if you kept the temple up and your God dwelt and was pleased with his place among you, then you were protected and provided for. Even They did that with even pagan gods. They had the impression that if you pacified your God with keeping the temple clean and keeping it up and keeping it beautiful and recognizing it, and that's what they were coming to do, to recognize their God, they assumed that everything would always be okay. There was no need for worry about anything. And the Lord's trying to tell them, it's not the temple, it's you. It's your life that needs to be kept up. It's your life that needs to be cleaned up. Don't trust in the deceptives of the word, deceptive words saying, we'll always be okay. We're literally walking into the temple, Jeremiah. I don't know why you're so upset about this stuff, right? But back to what I said when we began. If you can go, and this is my, one of my points of wrestling. If you can go on Sunday morning, and come away with the attitude, what a great day in the house of the Lord. And go back to a wreck of a life Monday through Saturday. You've got to come to one of two conclusions. The guy behind the pulpit is lying to you and he's comforting you in your sin. Or you're so deaf, you're not listening. I mean, that's only one of two things that can go on. If you walk in here and you walk out and you say, what a great day in the house of the Lord, yet your life doesn't reflect that. The guy is deceiving you with his words and entertaining you, which I think happens about 90% of the time. Or he's being honest with you about your sin and you're simply refusing to hear. So they were doing both things. We'll get to they were refusing to hear in just a second. But one of these things, they're both here in chapter 7, but he addresses the deceptive words first. You never stop coming on the Sabbath, and we'll find in just a moment, and you continue to worship other gods at the same time. And you're like, how? How can you do that? How can you bring your offering to the house of God and go out and worship the moon later that night? How? Well, the only answer to that question is that's what depravity does. You know, reading the Old Testament, we argue about free will all the time. And I think I brought this up last time we were here, but it always comes to mind. We always talk about free will. This is free will at its best. There's a guy popped up on my social feed just angry that anybody would preach the sovereignty of God with salvation. They didn't know Christ. And I was like, man, if I just peruse through the Old Testament, there's no way I could accept what you're saying. I know what men do when they're free. They worship God on Sunday morning and they worship some false God on Sunday night. They don't think anything's wrong. They're too stupid. I mean, literally, that's where sin has left us. We're too stupid to notice the difference. And so God in His grace says, you better stop listening to deceptive words. You better pay attention to your life. 
Notice verse 5. The first concern, concern number one. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor. Word neighbor opens up every avenue. Okay? If you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, stop taking advantage of people. Stop being so concerned with your own life that you don't have time for the lives of those people around you. In other words, stop looking out for number one and stop being or start being more concerned with the needs around you than your own. That's the first amendment that they needed to make to their lives. Do you think that would have been first? Are you surprised to find that one there? You know, our minds would take us where? We need to change something. Where was the first thing you would think to change something? Oh, Lord wants us to do something different in church. He's telling us this at the door, so there's something that we need to change in the church. No. (laughs) There's something you need to change at home. And it's how you think about your neighbor. And it's how you care for your neighbor. That was the first place. You drove right past it. Okay? So I need you to be concerned about the alien, the orphan, the widow. And by the way, you guys do a really good job with this. Um, a really good job. And I'm, you know, I'm not one to blow smoke. And I'm one to not say thank you as much as I should. But you guys really do a good job. You think about the orphans that have been adopted in this little body, it's really quite remarkable. And when I think about, you know, just the phone calls and the texts we got last week, y'all checking on me. I mean, you guys are concerned, but what I'm saying is there's a danger here that you need to be aware of. It's being so wrapped up in yourself that you're not paying attention to the people that are around you that are in desperate need. They need to be paid attention to, to which you do. Notice verse 7, Then I will let you dwell in this place in the land of promise that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. He comes back to it. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you, here comes the question, steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, offer sacrifices to Baal, a false god, Walk after other gods that you have never known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered. That you may then turn around and do all these abominations. And the answer to that question is, yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. That's exactly what we're doing. We have nothing but sinfulness toward our neighbor. We worship false gods of the culture. And then we walk right in here on the Sabbath and worship you and sing praises because you're our deliverer. What do you think? Are we any better off than they were when you consider where the church is at today? I would tell you there was so much worse because God sent His Son to be our deliverer 
And then we live lives that don't reflect his holiness, his goodness, and we lift up our hands and call him by name and call him as our deliverer. I would tell you we're far worse off. You know, we used to attend a church uh, and please don't please don't think I don't think church should be a joyous and fun expression of our worship to God but the first song was come let's have church now me being fully aware of my own heart my attitude is if I'm going to be honest about it I would crawl from the church to the pew That's the only thing that I can think to do to just really be honest with the Lord. That I should be coming in here filled with humility. Absolutely filled. Not trotting in here clapping my hands. That's one of the things that got me so bad when we went to youth camp last year. That's how, quote unquote, worship began. A really fun, upbeat song to get all the kids up and jumping and clapping and having fun. And I'm thinking, if you understood your heart and your desperate need for your Savior, clapping would be like the last thing you'd do. Laying on your face, weeping. That's a good way to start worship. Having to be reminded of the overwhelming grace of God that He would save somebody like me and allow me into his presence. Wouldn't that be a good Sunday where we all had to comfort one another? Stop weeping. God loves you. Christ died for you. Lift up your hearts now in praise. Dry the tears from your eyes. God has forgiven you through his son. And he's asking you to worship him. That would be a good Sunday, right? That would be the kind of attitude sinners ought to have toward their God. Knowing that the Lord, that the Lord would say this, look back at verse 9 and 10. Will you steal? Will you murder? Will you commit adultery? Will you lie? Will you offer sacrifices to a false God? Will you walk after those gods and then come right in here and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and then sing, we're delivered? Would you do that? And then notice verse 11, because this is not the context in which Jesus quoted this. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. Now, when does the Lord say that? Do you remember when the Lord says that in the New Testament? What's going on? Cleaning out the temple, the money He's cleaning out the temple and the money changers. And we see that context and we understand that. They were making money off of the worshipers coming into the house of God through exchanging monies. And, of course, we totally get Jesus' anger and frustration that moment to clean the temple out and knock over the tables, right? But he's not speaking to money changers here. He's speaking to worshipers. And he refers to the worshipers as a den of robbers because they have stolen everything from the Lord. And we're not talking about money. We're talking about glory, right? We certainly don't want to be guilty of that. 
we certainly want to come to the house of the Lord humbly and repentantly prepared on Saturday, knowing that we gather corporately on Sunday and taking full advantage of our opportunity to worship. 12 and 14 is a reference. It says, But go now to my place which is in Shiloh, where I made a name, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did because of the wickedness of my people Israel. Now, keep a finger there and go to Joshua 18. Get to the end of Deuteronomy. You walk right into Joshua. Joshua 18, verse 1. Subtitle will give you some help as to the context. When you get to Joshua, they're in the promised land. The promised land has been divided up. You notice verse 1, Then the whole congregation of the sons of Israel assembled themselves at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. So this is the first place for the tent, right? In the promised land. It was in Shiloh. And in fact, if you'll go with me now to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Let's see, I think I'm not going to try all those names in verse 1. Let me start with verse 2, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 2. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And so it was set up under the days of Joshua, but when Samuel the prophet is still ministering before the Lord, it's still at Shiloh, right? And so it's way on into, I think, the days of Saul, perhaps. It's a little bit of a question of when it was destroyed, but this is the reference now that you have back in Jeremiah. Now go back to Jeremiah chapter 7. Because of the wickedness of the people... Shiloh and the entire city and all the buildings was in it was completely decimated. And it was the original place of the Lord. So he says to them in Jerusalem, but now go to my place which is in Shiloh where I made a name for where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called to you, but you did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, just like I did to Shiloh, I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brothers and all the offspring of Ephraim, in reference to Israel. Okay, so he says you're trusting in a place and you're trusting in the temple, but if you'll go down to Shiloh, and they literally could have, and look at that wasteland, you'll know exactly what I'm about to do in your city because of how you're acting. Look what he tells Jeremiah in verse 16 now. 
As for you, do not pray for this people. Do not lift up cry or prayer for them. And do not intercede with me, for I do not want to hear you. Do you not see what they're doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood. The fathers start the fire. The women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods in order to spite me. Do they spite me, declares the Lord? No. Is it not themselves they despite or they spite to their own shame? And so he tells Jeremiah the prophet, stop interceding for them, which is a clear sign I'm done. I don't, I don't even want to hear it anymore. They've crossed that line with me. Their disobedience is, is reached up to my neck. And I don't want you to intercede for them anymore. Judgment's coming. And then he gives a reference to what the people have done in their own families. Dad carried the people off into false worship. Mom and dad trained the children how to worship the gods. That's the reference there. The children are gathering the wood. The dad's starting the fire. And mom's in the kitchen making the cakes in order that we might worship the queen of heaven or the stars and the moons and those sort of things. So, again, the cultural influence of false worship had made it all the way down to the small kids in the family. The whole family's participating in these things. You, you've allowed wickedness to pervade everywhere, right? Verse 20, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger, my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man, on beast, on trees of the field, on fruit of the ground, and it will burn, and it will not be quenched. Had enough. Judgment is coming for what they have done. Now, when you get to these next passages, it, it requires a lot of thought. This is about where I've stopped in my thought because I know there's a lot more here than I've had time to consider this. But again, Jeremiah was standing at the door. People were coming into worship. Now this word is spoken right in the midst of worship, if you will. Notice what he says. Add your burnt offerings. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat flesh. Keep going with your sacrifices. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice. I will be your God and you will be my people and you will walk in all the way which I commanded you that it may be well with you. Now, here's the thought. And if we had time, we'd go back and turn. But you're leaving Egypt, right? He brings you to the foot of Mount Sinai. And what does he give the people? Ten Commandments. And he calls them to obey. Where are we at in the Bible? What, what book are we in? Exodus, right? Exodus 20, right? When does he tell them about 
burnt offerings and sacrifices? Leviticus. Leviticus. Where's the order of importance? Obedience or sacrifice? Obedience comes first. But the sacrifice never stopped. So as depraved people, we need to understand sacrifice is no skin off our backs. We can sacrifice all day long. The problem lies with our obedience. That's what we sidestep. That's what we ignore. And we continue to offer the sacrifice. And God's like, I don't even know how you're able to do that. There's never been a time where I said sacrifice was a priority. I've always said obedience is better than sacrifice. But yet you're a people who disregard obedience and keep right on with sacrifice. And it doesn't bother you at all. So he tells the people as a sign of judgment, you just keep on going, offering your sacrifice. Keep singing your songs. Keep going through your motions on worship. It's no big deal to me. But you need to realize you've ignored what I first told you when I led you out of Egypt. I brought you to the mountain and I gave you the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments and I said, you keep this and you'll be my people. That's how precious and important the gospel is. And this is the element of the gospel that is not communicated enough. The prize of the gospel is the Holy Spirit. The prize of the gospel is the Spirit of God that resides within your heart, not in a temple. And it is the job of the Holy Spirit not to manifest himself in some bizarre charismatic way in your life, but to bring you to obedience in your life to the law of God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's a primary work of the Holy Spirit. I would say even more than that. This is the desire of the Spirit of God to manifest the will of God in your life, to work obedience in your life, not sacrifice. Sacrifice is nothing more than overflow of obedience. So if you're able to sacrifice to the Lord and disregard the word of the Lord, you have a problem and you better change your ways. Because God sees it as treason, what you're doing. Which makes me reflect more on worship because much of, most of it in our day is nothing more than treason. I think that's why God calls them robbers in this text because you totally ignore obedience and go right ahead with sacrifice. You're stealing everything away from me that I told you to to demonstrate that you're my people. So let me ask you this. What defines us as the people of God? Well, if we're gospel people, if we're people that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then we are people that have been filled with the Spirit of God. So what is the Spirit of God going to do in our life? Bring us to repentance and obedience, which is faith. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So what do we say in our day? What's evidence of the Holy Spirit? Huh? No. What do we say? That's right. What are we relegated the Holy Spirit to? 
emotions. It's emotion. It's an energy. I like energy. I really do. I don't tonight. But typically I like a lot of energy. I just like energetic people. It's easier to pay attention to. It's fun, right? But we've got to be so careful that the Holy Spirit is not an energy mist. He's not an attitude. He, he's not a shout or a tear. He's the Spirit of God that dwells within you that's bringing about repentance and faith in you. That's the Holy Spirit. And so what's done in our day, and we talk about this often, you leave church and you say, that was such a spirit-filled day, and I immediately struggle. I mean, I know what you're saying, and I enjoy those days as well, but I refuse to relegate the spirit to a moment where I was overwhelmed with my emotions. I refuse to do that to the Holy Spirit. I'll give the Holy Spirit credit when I tell my wife, I'm sorry, I should not have said that to you. I'm sorry, I was not kind, I was not gentle, I was bossy, I'm sorry. And those moments are the moments that I turn to the Holy Spirit and I go, thank you. Because I know without the Spirit I wouldn't have said that or done that. Anytime you confess your sin, you need to thank the Spirit of God because without the Spirit of God, you wouldn't even know to confess. You wouldn't care to confess. You wouldn't think to confess, right? The moment you do something and you feel conviction in your heart, it's the moment you ought to stop and thank God for His Spirit because you're having a Spirit-filled moment because conviction has welled up in your heart and you go, I lied and that was wrong. I muddied the waters of truth so I wouldn't look bad at work or to somebody else and I kind of said a half truth rather than a whole truth and you feel that conviction sweep into your heart, you're having a spirit-filled moment. You ought to rejoice at that and go back and clean that up. Those are our spirit-filled moments. And I'm telling you something, you walk Monday through Saturday being extensive to the spirit in that way, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking Sunday's probably going to be an emotional day for you, but it'll be personally emotional. It won't be, it won't be driven by a song. It won't be driven by somebody else's charismatic stuff going on. It will be a personal thing between you and the Lord, knowing that He's been faithful to you all week long, and you've struggled, but you've come out on the other side of it, matured in Christ. You probably walk in crying. And people will ask, something wrong? <laughs> no, nothing's wrong. I'm having a great day. And you're like, dude, we haven't even started singing yet. Yeah. Yeah. My worship started like Tuesday <laughs> when the Spirit shook me a little bit and I responded by faith. And, and those, two, those two moments might look the same, right? But you know the difference in your own soul. I didn't have to be stirred up. I came stirred up because I've been under conviction and repentance all week. All right, let me get back to it. 24, yet, well, 23, but this is what I commanded them saying, obey my voice, I'll be your God, you will be my people. Now let me be very careful to understand, 
you need to understand what the gospel has done. We are God's people not because we obey the commands. We are God's people because Jesus obeyed God's commands. Don't mistake in that. We don't obey the covenant and win the covenantal prize. Jesus obeyed the covenant on our behalf and won the covenantal prize for us, okay? So don't let me mess that up. This is old covenant. This is what I commanded them saying, Obey my voice and I will be your God and you will be my people. You will walk in all the way which I commanded you and it will be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear but they walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil heart and went backward and not forward. That you can still do. You can still obey your own counsel. You can still go backwards and not forwards. And what that is a clear sign of is that you might not be a person who Jesus has purchased. That's, that's the evidence. It's not the fulfillment of the covenant. It's the evidence that the covenant has been fulfilled. If you're the type of person that hears the word of the Lord and repents and walks in his counsel and not your own. Is that clear? Is what I'm saying clear? Jesus wins the covenant. And if you trusted in Jesus, you've won the covenant prize, which is the presence of God. But have you trusted Jesus if you continue to walk in your own wisdom and your own counsel and you refuse to hear the Lord. That's a terrifying position for you to be in because you probably hadn't trusted Jesus. You don't want to be left there. Verse 25, Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, notice the grace of God, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending to them. So, you know, they just walked past one at the door, Jeremiah. The Lord's like, I've done this since I brought you out of Egypt. I always send a prophet to communicate to you truth, right? Verse 26, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck and they did more evil than their fathers. You, God says to Jeremiah, shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. And you shall call to them, but they will not answer you. Such is preaching. That's the reality of it. Unless you're a spirit-filled person that is being sensitive to the spirit in the moment, I walk through that reality every Sunday. And let me include myself in that. Because I ask myself that sometimes, Joey, are you listening to what you're saying? Because I have to listen as well, right? These people would not listen. You shall say to them, This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God or accept correction. Notice, truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. No more proclamation of truth. Cut off your hair, which is probably a reference to a virgin losing her virginity. Cut your hair. Throw it away. Take up a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things, which is idols for false worship, in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. They actually brought that garbage into the house. 
They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. This is how far they've gone in the worship of idols. They sacrificed their own kids, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. You've done things that have absolutely nothing to do with me. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of the slaughter, for they will bury in Topheth because there is no other place. The dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky, for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten the birds away. Then I will make to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, for the land will become an utter ruin. At that time, declares the Lord, they will bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the bones of its princes, its important people, the bones of the priests, the bones of the prophets, the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They will dig up the bones from their graves and they will spread them out to the sun, to the moon, and to all the hosts of heaven, which they've loved and they've served, and which they've gone after, and which they have sought, and which they have worshipped, and they will not be gathered, they will not be buried, they will be as dung on the face of the ground. And death will be chosen rather than life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family that remains in all the places to which I have driven them, declares the Lord. And so that's the end of this door sermon, so to speak, that the Lord preached. And he was bringing them there in the conclusion to utter shame because not to be buried was, I mean, it didn't get any worse than that. And so he said, we're literally, the enemies coming against you is going to dig up your bones and just scatter them out in the street. It'll be absolutely shameful because of your disobedience to the Lord. Let me take you from that to Jesus. Because without Jesus, that's exactly what would be done to us. We're no different of a people. We're no better of a people. We're just as sinful as these people. And if God had not sent His Son, our bones would literally be left to the streets, laid bare before heaven in utter shame. But because of Christ, we're the sons and daughters of God. So rather than our bones being dug up and scattered in the road, we'll be, scat or we'll be gathered rather to the glories of heaven all because of Jesus, not because of you and not because of me. Now, if that don't set your heart to singing, what will? If that doesn't cause you to want to give your heart and your life to Jesus, what in the world will? Because we're not a different people. But in His amazing love and His amazing grace, God sent His Son who purchased for us the covenantal price through His obedience. And He gives it to us through trusting in Him, through faith in Him. Run to Christ. Run to Christ. And you go from the wrath of God to the pleasures of God forevermore. I'm telling you, what we have in Jesus, we don't have enough words. We don't have enough praise. We don't have enough songs. We have not written one billionth of the songs that we ought to have written by now to the glories of Christ. 
And you think of what little time that we've set aside to praise the Son of God when we know our end without Him. We ought to be a people that have no time for anything other than praise. How can we stop singing? How can we stop praying? How can we stop glorying in the Son of God when you understand fully what He has done for you? It is absolutely amazing at the grace of God that He would not fall upon us in utter wrath and consume us because we rightly deserve it. And you get a full picture of a people who have been blessed by God, the chosen of the chosen, like no one else. And again, if anybody should have known and gotten it right, it would have been these people. And so when God gives you just a little window into their lives and how they would sacrifice their own kids and how they would bring the artifacts of their false worship into the house of the Lord and then lift their hands and sing, we are delivered to God. And you're like, man, how in the world can you be like that? And then you realize, wait a minute, I am like that. If it was not for the grace of God, I'm exactly like that. We have much to praise God for. And we have much to praise Jesus for. And the very least thing we could do is give him our lives in worship and service. Comments, questions about that?